Good to see you here this morning. And, uh, glad you came out today. And uh, it's we managed to fit in, right? It's uh, taken a while to get used to how we space out, and uh, some of us six feet apart was too many, but you know, one and a half is too close. You know, so let's uh, trying to get our comfort zones back and established. But uh, we're we're uh, working on that, and uh, glad you're. Glad you're here. Anybody watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics yet? This week? Yeah? Yeah? Um, the, the Olympics, apparently in the United States, they run for two weeks. Um, in Australia, they only run for one week. You know, we do the swimming, and then I don't know what comes after that. Apparently something else goes on, but uh, I, I don't know anything about it. <clears throat> but uh, it's a good chance to get to know all those Sports, you know, be an expert in a sport that you've never seen before. Um, so, we are back in the book of Acts today. Uh, we're picking that up. So, we have, uh, through the first 12 chapters of Acts, it's kind of a section as it deals with the church in Jerusalem. And the prime main character, other than God and the Holy Spirit, uh, the main human character through there is the Apostle Peter, with lots of cameos by. Um, Barnabas and uh, um, am I trying to think of Stephen? Uh, John shows up. You know all these different people coming in, but primarily it's the Apostle Peter through that first uh, twelve chapters. There's some real significant things that happen in those first twelve. But when we get to chapter thirteen, the attention that turns to the Apostle Paul, and uh, we're or as he starts out, Saul. And uh, then we're going to, to pick up with that in just a moment. But because we took this sort of lengthy break to having spent the, you know, 12 chapters uh, kind of focused on the work of the Apostle Peter, uh, then we spent that time looking at the writings of the Apostle Peter. Now we, as we come back to Acts, I want to remind you just kind of where we were in chapter 12. And uh, you might like, if you have your Bible there, I don't have slides today, so... If you have your Bible, have it open and uh, sort of look at the headings perhaps in chapters 11 and 12. And uh, I want to just read this summary. It was from a, uh, one of the commentaries that I'm reading that I found helpful. It says, the last section of Acts, which would be just chapters 10, 11, 12, ended with hope. Hope that the resistance had been confronted. Luke indicated that Herod Agrippa who was persecuting the church, the corrupt Jewish leader died by the hand of God. Uh, the religious leader in Jerusalem, Gamaliel, uh, the Jewish religious leader, had persuaded the other Jewish leaders to observe the momentum of the Christian movement, but not to interfere. Outsiders began to embrace the gospel, while the internal prejudices and racism of those early Christians was addressed by the Holy Spirit. As we saw the uh, issue with the uh, distribution of food to the, to the widows, the Greek, Greek and widows taken care of. The church began to grow and witness Jesus' resurrection as it spread out of Jerusalem and to Antioch, the Roman world's third largest city up in Syria, north of Israel. Luke mentioned Peter and Jerusalem one last time in chapter 12 before uh, moving to the spreading of the gospel into the Gentile world. 
Although the Apostle Paul is going to come back and visit Jerusalem, Jerusalem is no longer the focus of the events that take place. Now, if you lived in Jerusalem, Jerusalem would have still been the center of the religious world and probably the Christian world. Uh, So what we're receiving is an account of somebody that left. But it doesn't mean that the church in Jerusalem thought that they'd been left behind while the gospel message and mission was taken somewhere else. It's just we're following that particular story with the Apostle Paul rather than the story of those who remained in Jerusalem. So chapter 13, that's where we're going to be today. And I I want to just um, kind of give you an overview to begin with, and that is that chapter 13, the main, the bulk of it is a retelling of the basic Christian message. We're going to see this uh, unsurprisingly, right, as the Apostle Paul travels throughout the Mediterranean basin, as he tells the gospel message, we're going to have accounts of the gospel message recorded for us. And and so it's interesting if you think, how would you explain your faith in five minutes or less to somebody that wasn't a Christian or had very little Christian background? Because that's really what the sermon samples we have here are. Kind of elevator pitches uh, for for their faith. And summaries of the sermons, not the complete sermons. Now, if you were to look in uh, uh, verse 16, really it runs from verse 16 through verse 41, we have this sermon from Saul, delivered in the synagogue in a, in a city, uh, Pisidian Antioch, um, which, of course, you all know a lot about. Uh, one, one thing... Oh, yeah, you don't. don't. Don't feel bad if you don't know anything about that. That's all right. Um, so one thing we need to notice as we look at this sermon and the others is that they almost inevitably begin in the Hebrew Scriptures. So I, I think right off the top, that's probably different from the way that we would begin our five-minute explanation. Probably we would begin with Christmas. But they always begin in the Hebrew Scriptures. In in fact, if you uh, just look quickly down in verse 17, it says, The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper, uh, grow in number during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. Okay, So we go straight to the Exodus, the captivity, and then the Exodus from Egypt. uh, And then... Brief mention of conquering the land. And then uh, in verse, the judges, in verse 21, the people asked for a king, he gave them Saul. And in verse 22, he removed Saul and made David king. And then he moves on to a prophecy, and later on he's going to mention the prophets. So he, he starts with the Exodus, David, and then he's going to use the teaching of the prophets to validate what he tells them about the life of Jesus. Okay? So that is kind of the foundation of his uh, gospel presentation. Although the, 
disciples of Jesus had first been called Christians in Acts chapter 11 in the church in Antioch, they didn't, it wasn't as though they said, hey, this is a new religion, we need to come up with a name. Rather, that was a description that was given to them. Um, and, and so they, did, they, they didn't see themselves as starting a new religion. So we see this continuity from the Hebrew scriptures on through. It's all just one road, one journey, one path from their perspective. It's the same thing. It's just gone through different transitions. Just as we might say Abraham and his descendants all the way through to Moses were Jews. Uh, you know, sort of Israelites. That's probably a better word. They were Israelites. They were God's people, God's chosen people. But they didn't have a covenant. Now they come to Sinai. That's a dramatic moment, isn't it? It's this covenant that God makes with his people. And what are they going to say? Oh, the people before us, they were some other faith. They were some other religion. We've got a new religion because we have a new law and a new covenant. No, it was a continuity. And so what the disciples see is that when Jesus comes, it's just simply another transition, another stage, another point of growth in their relationship with God. That God has become flesh, that the Messiah that the Old Testament has been looking forward to has arrived, and now they move forward. The kingdom is expanding. The Gentiles have access to the kingdom of God for the first time, and and that God is continuing to move in that direction. And it's one complete narrative, one complete and that's why they began with the Hebrew scriptures came to Jesus and then looked forward into the future as they tell the gospel now the difference between them and their Jewish opponents wasn't that they were Jews because the first Christians were Jewish Christians the difference hung on the identity of Jesus. You see, the Christians said, we've got this history, we've got this heritage, we've got the temple, we've got the prophets, we've got David, we've got the Exodus, all of that we share with everyone. But we believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, that he rose from the dead, that he sits on the throne of heaven. And the other Jews said, well, we've got this shared history, we've got the temple, we've got the prophets, we've got David, but we don't believe that Jesus was anything special. Maybe a prophet. And so you come to this pivot point in history where people are either saying, we are going to depend on the way God has revealed himself in the past. Or we're going to accept that God has done something new and different. And we're going to move forward in that direction. And Christians... Sorry, I already said that. So in a sense, as the message of Jesus spread throughout the Mediterranean region. As as Paul, as Barnabas, as other Christians would come to a town and they, they would share their story. They would go to the synagogue because they were Jews, because they shared all of this history and they would come and they would say, hey, I've just learned something new. What I've learned isn't that God has abolished Judaism. What they learned is that Judaism has been fulfilled, that the Messiah has come and let me tell you about him. And then let's, let's ride with that. And so it created a division in these towns between those that were committed to their past who said, no, you can't invalidate 
all of that. And those who were willing to accept something new and something different. Now the Gentile communities also faced a similar decision. The evangelistic effort of the first Christians presented a new phenomenon to the world. You see, in paganism, there were certainly people who were very devout to their temple. And you could pick any Greek or Roman god, and they were, they were committed to that god. And, but it was never just to one god. And so if you found this particular god, let's say you were dedicated to, uh, and I should know the names of all the different gods, but I don't, but if you were dedicated to a god that was involved in healing, and then you have a friend that always seems to be catching the flu, you know what you say to that friend? Your problem is that you're not worshipping my god. You should come to temple with me tomorrow, and let's make a sacrifice, let's consult the priest, and let's get you healthy. But you know what they didn't say? They didn't say, you are worshipping the wrong God. You need to get rid of those gods. And you need to convert over to mine. Rather, what they would say is, you need to clear a little space on the shelf. Get yourself a trinket from the temple, from my temple, for this God of healing, and put it up there. And it will bless your household. And you'll be better off. And, and And then you just get another festival. So you've already got six festivals in the year, but now you've got seven. But you'll be better for it. And then the Christians come along. And they come into town and starts at the Jewish synagogue. But they have this message. And the the pagans have always kind of been intrigued by these Jews. They've been standoffish. They only have one God. They, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. They're just a little strange compared to everyone else. But, But... They're also very particular about who can come and be part of them. And there's always that circumcision thing, right? And and so the Jews were not out there recruiting people. There's no record of Jewish missionaries traveling around the Mediterranean trying to convert pagans to come and worship the true God. Now, if somebody that was a pagan was curious enough to start hanging out at the synagogue... They were welcome. There was an avenue of, of becoming a proselyte, of becoming a, uh, a, a Jew and worshipping Yahweh. Um, but that wasn't their purpose. Their purpose was to make sure that they were pleasing God. And, and so what happens then is the Christians roll into town and not only do they sort of cause disruption because they want to tell the Jews about a Messiah, they cause disruption because they want to say, hey, And this new kingdom, the Messiah that came, is a light to the nations. uh, Paul uses this in his sermon. Quotes from Isaiah 49, and he does it several times throughout his preaching and letters. He says, we're a light to the nations, allowing them to come in and be part of God's kingdom. And, And so now the Gentiles in the town, the pagans in the town, they go, hey, we can worship Yahweh. This new preacher, this new group of Jews, they're going to let us be part of it. Clear a little more shelf, space on the shelf. And that's when the Christians say, well, actually, it doesn't work like that. You see, we have this powerful message of God in the flesh, of a resurrection, and we're convinced that it's the truth, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he fulfills prophecies from centuries ago. There's a lot of compelling reasons. We've seen him alive in some instances. 
that, that you should come and you should follow and be part of this movement and this community, but there isn't room in this community for those other gods because there's only one. And so the Gentiles face this decision. What are we going to do? Am I going to stick with my family gods? Now, Rome was a great empire. The, the Roman pagan gods had apparently prospered that empire quite well for many people. And are they going to give up on that and follow this compelling story that the Jewish teachers were sharing? Were they going to stay with their family traditions or were they going to try something new and very, very different? And so both the Jews and the Gentiles face this dilemma between the past and the traditions and the future. Now, in some ways, this doesn't seem fair because we know that there are some people uh, who are just, their personality is always looking for something new, right? You know those people. They're the ones that get up at midnight or start at the night before. They go stand in line at the Apple store because they want to get the next iPod, iPhone, iWatch, iRocket, I don't know, whatever it is that is is coming to them, they're going to be there. Right? They want that new thing. They want to embrace the future. They want to be part of it. They have this fear of missing out on whatever the future is going to be. And that's their personality. And you give them a new idea and they're like, yes, I'm in for it. And it's like, you think the Christians come into town and there's just some Jewish people. They are just like, oh, they've been dying in this old tradition stuff. And now they've got an opportunity for something new and it gives them a purpose. And they're like, yes, I'm on board with this. Same for the Gentiles. So doesn't it seem like they have an advantage of converting to Christianity over those that are stable, that respect the past, that honor their parents who taught them this stuff, and and they're not going to make a switch at the drop of a hat just because somebody comes into town and says they should? And so I want to suggest that the gospel actually encourages all personality types. Okay? And it encourages all personality types to be honest as we evaluate the Jesus story. And I think for some people that initial decision is the hard, hardest part of it. But you know what? Those people are going to have trouble sticking with it. Because in six months or 12 months or 10 years, there's going to be another new idea. Somebody else is going to come into town and they're going to bring a new religion from France or Britain or somewhere and and they're going to have to say, no, I'm not going to jump at that new idea. I'll just wait till the next iPhone comes out. And that's going to burn them up. And and so they're going to have trouble sticking with it just as there are some that are going to have trouble making that initial decision. And so the, the gospel encourages all of us to evaluate the Jesus story for its truth and for its meaning and for its purpose and to make a decision and to commit to it. So that is kind of what's going on in that long sermon that we're not talking about this morning. (coughs) Um, So I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 13. And uh, it's really interesting to, to see where it begins um, there's this group of prophets and teachers, an interesting group. If we include Paul in there, it includes a Pharisee. Barnabas is a Levite from Cyprus. 
Uh, Simeon is called Niger. That means Niger is black, so he's an African, is part of this group. Um, there's also a, another guy, um, oh, Lucius from Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa, uh, sort of Egypt or Libya, kind of Libya area. Um, and uh, then um, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Like, I mean, you've got royalty kind of in that group. So this is this super diverse group of teachers and prophets in the church there in Antioch. And we talked about the church in Antioch and just the example they are. Uh, I saw this, I'll just mention this really briefly. I saw this note that said, uh, usually we define a culture by what we have in common. Okay? If you want to go and study a culture, the way you study it is say, what do they have in common? Yeah. But the Holy Spirit says, no, actually the culture that he's establishing here for the church is one where what's in common is what we don't have in common. Right? It, it, it's a culture of diversity right here from the very beginning because the only thing these guys have in common, apparently, is their commitment to Jesus. So uh, that, that's, that's just for free. And, and then in, uh, in verse 2, it says, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. Right? What we do is we come to God, come before the throne of God in worship as we do this together. We, are, we make ourselves available to God and God speaks to us at times. And God speaks to this group of people, and I don't know what it sounded like. I don't know if it sounded like something. I don't know if it was just sort of like they developed a group think, you know, that these godly people said, you know, I really think we need to expand. You know, we, we can't keep this to ourselves. I feel the Holy Spirit urging us to do something. And, and so uh, I don't know what it sounded like or looked like, but the message that they got was set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So these two men are being set apart. And, and then it's interesting, after they get this message from the Holy Spirit, they continue to fast and continue to pray as though they're seeking confirmation, affirmation. Have we heard it right? Are we ready for this? Let's prepare for what comes next. And then they place their hands on them and they send them off. That's what God has called them to. And that's where it begins in worship. Um, they send off Barnabas, Saul, John Mark was with them. And uh, we don't know if there are also others. But they get in a boat, and uh, I could have put a map up, but you can imagine this. They get in a boat, and they head west, out into the Mediterranean, uh, and they come to the island of Cyprus. Um, why Cyprus? Why go west instead of north, you know, on land? Why take to the sea? Why not go south? Um, or, or even east? So Cyprus was where Barnabas came from. And so it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And so we're going to use a little imagination as we go through this, but because we're not given all the details. But Barnabas is from Cyprus, and so maybe this is a logical place for him to begin. He had contacts. He knew people. And maybe above all, he wanted them to hear the gospel message. And so he says to Paul Saul, he says, hey, let's go to Cyprus i got some people that need Jesus. i got a place for us to stay. You know, I, I know we'll be received there. You know, let's go not jump in the lion's den you know, on our first day. And, and so they come and they land on the eastern end of Cyprus. Cyprus basically runs east-west. They land on the eastern end. Uh, at, at the original capital city had been there, but the Romans moved it. And so they landed there and they walked through, traveled through to the western end and to the capital city on that end of the island. 
And when they, they get there, uh, in verse 6, uh, we see that there's a pattern from this point on that's going to be repeated throughout the book of, of Acts. And they come in, and the first thing they do is they proclaim the gospel. Okay? Is they're not shy. They're going to proclaim the gospel, tell the Jesus story. And initially, there's a warm reception. They're offered the opportunity to speak when they arrive in the synagogue. People are interested, but then there's resistance. And I, I like this. The resistance is always accompanied by persistence from the disciples. Okay. Uh, I can't think of any occasion where they just say, oh, okay, well, we'll just give up. We'll be quiet. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, you don't need to know about that. Yeah. We'll go somewhere else. So resistance is followed by persistence from the disciples. And sometimes they do have to leave town. But even then... And certainly when they don't, the gospel spreads and the church grows. And that is almost always the summary as they move to the next location. Now this time, the resistance comes from a Jewish magi or sorcerer in the Roman governor's court. It's, I think my uh, NIV translation says proconsul. Um, we'll just go with governor, okay, since we're not up on all the ranks in Roman bureaucracy. Um, so the, the, the governor hears that something's happening within, it's not a big place. We talk about it as a city and as a capital city, but you know, it's smaller than Rochester. Uh, it's a small place. Population is much smaller uh, in general than where we live. And, and so the governor hears that something's happening and says, hey, I'd like to meet these people that are causing this stir in my town. And he brings them to his court, and that is where they encounter this Jewish magi, um, and then, or false prophet. And then in verse 9, Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to him, you are going to be blind for a time. Paul had been there, right? <laughs> you are going to be blind for a time and not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him. You see, that takes some courage, doesn't it? That you're in, standing before the governor, an important person in the court uh, is opposing you, telling everyone not to listen to you, and you just say, okay, you, you're going to be blind now. <coughs> and it happens. Right. Um, look at the, the very next line in verse, uh, verse 12. When the, pro, when the proconsul, the governor, saw what had happened, he believed. And you would think, yeah, <laughs> okay, I believe. I'll do anything you tell me to do, Saul. What is it you want? Right? Don't turn me blind. Don't make me next. You know, what are you going to do to me? But it's not that, not that kind of thing. Uh, it says, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And so when it says he believed, it means he became a believer. This is the first person that we're told uh, converted to Christianity, to following Jesus, on the missionary journeys of, of Paul. And it's the governor, no less, of the island of Cyprus. History tells us that this governor had wealthy family members in Pisidian Antioch. 
And I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul and Barnabas travel there next. Now, I, I ask you again to just sort of imagine this map. So they're in Cyprus, which is on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. And where do you go next? You've traveled from east to west on the island of Cyprus. Do you go to Rome? You know, keep heading in that direction. Uh, head over to Crete, maybe up to Athens or something. Instead, they go directly north to the middle, kind, imagine the middle of Turkey. Um, there's not a whole lot in the middle of Turkey. Certainly not in this day and time. Uh, there were bigger cities, bigger cities were generally on the coast. Uh, but Pisidian Antioch was an interesting city. It was Roman. In fact, the, the Romans, uh, the, the bureaucracy, the, the politicians, after they'd fought wars, they said, you know, we don't want all those soldiers coming back to uh, Rome. Okay. They're violent men. Um, if, if somebody wants to overthrow us, um, they've got all these human weapons at their disposal. Uh, so we, we don't want grumpy, angry, violent, retired soldiers filling up the streets of Rome. Instead, let's put them in the middle of Turkey and call it a retirement colony. Um, <laughs> And so that's what they did. They established this colony for their retired soldiers uh, to go and, and live. Well, naturally, these retired soldiers are very patriotic, uh, committed to Rome. And so they established a very Roman city there in the middle of Turkey. And so it's, it's well-structured, organized, uh, controlled, and very loyal to Rome and to the Roman gods and religion and culture. But this is where Paul and Barnabas go. Uh, probably not, you would think, the most receptive place after you've just had this wonderful reception there in Cyprus. Um, but I wonder, since the governor, and his name there is uh, Sergius Paulus, since he becomes a Christian, I wonder if he doesn't say to Paul, to Saul and Barnabas, if he doesn't say, hey, I'll give you some provisions, I'll put you on a boat, I'll send you letters of introduction, can you go and tell my family about Jesus? Can, can, if you go up there, I know that they'll welcome you, right? I'll give them a, a glowing recommendation, and, uh, and, and can you go and tell them? About Jesus. I can't leave Cyprus, right? Caesar kind of wants me here. Um, but, but if you can go, I'd love for them to hear. And I, I love that sort of immediate urge on his part to say, hey, I'm a Christian. Now, who else needs to hear this message? I think it's a great example for, for all of us to have that mindset. And so, as I read this passage, as I think about these events, um, I have in my head this phrase, no going back. No going back. You see, if you think about it, Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas, they accepted the Holy Spirit's urging. They're in Antioch. Right? Uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit said to these teachers and prophets in the church, I want you to go and grab these two guys and send them out. And they could have said, uh-uh, <clears throat> no, no, we've got to go. In fact, isn't that what Moses does? Isn't that what so many of God's prophets Actually, we're going to Jerusalem. 
There's a festival there, a feast we need to be part. But they said, no, we'll go. They accepted it. That message, that challenge, that message and prompting from the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that uh, Saul, when he strikes the magician with blindness, right? What if you were, you're walking in and you think, okay, uh, Saul, don't make a scene. Don't make a scene. Like, get on well with the governor. Just get him to, to sign off. And you're just a Jew and you're just doing your thing and teaching. They're like, don't, don't. They're like, you will be blind. And so, like, what have I done? Right? No going back. No going back. Everybody is going to know who Saul is. And so he is committed. Right? The, the, he is on the radar of the Roman governor, the Roman soldiers, the police officials, the Jewish synagogue. Like Everybody knows at this point who Saul is. No going back. Uh, I think of the governor as he believes the gospel message and, and there's no going back for him because he sends Saul and, and Barnabas to his family. You, you have a, wouldn't it have been easier for him just to keep this new faith, his rejection of the family gods? Wouldn't it have been easier just to keep that a secret while he's in Cyprus and they're up there in, in Turkey? Like, they don't need to know about that. And, and I'll just grow in my faith and I'll study and I'll learn and, and someday I'll go back there and, you know, I'll explain what's going on. I'll talk about the difference and tell them who Jesus is. And I'll have been successful. It'll be all right. He says, he says, there's no going back for him. He says, no, go, tell my family, explain to them what's going on. They're probably going to think I'm crazy. But I want you to share the gospel with them. No going back. And, and so I, I think we can even look at, think of those, um, the Jews and the Gentiles that have to make this initial decision for, for, are they going to follow Jesus? Are they going to accept him as the Messiah? They want, there's this pull to go back to the tradition of the family gods, to go back to the safety of the law and the, the Old Testament, to not to make this transition uh, to the Messiah and to the new uh, king direction of the kingdom of God. But for the Christians, there's no going back. If Jesus is the Messiah, this is, we have to move forward. And I think this passage is appropriate for our circumstances. As we take these gradual steps on the path back from the disruption caused by the pandemic. And because what's our mindset as we come back together? What's our mindset? What's our goal? What's our aim? What's our purpose? You see, I I think we can have a longing to restore the past. And I think that's really understandable. I get it. Because if we can recover what the pandemic took from us, it feels like we've won. Right? If, if we can get things to the way they were before, it feels like, yes, we got knocked down, but we got up again. We liked the way things were, and we'd like them back again, please, Mr. Coronavirus. But I think we need to be cautious that we don't romanticize the past. Because in 2019, 2018, 2017, and you can keep counting. At no point was Lawson Road a perfect congregation. And it never will be because it's filled with imperfect people. And so where do we stop trying to find the best time to go back to? Is it just to 2019? Is it Harmony Sunday of 2020, just two weeks before we stopped meeting? And we had 150, 160 people in here. And it was a wonderful celebration. 
Is that where we want to go back to? I know people that want to go back to the 1980s. They want to go back to the 1960s. Because life was simpler then. Because the church was stronger then. Because things were the way that I liked them then. And now it's complicated and confusing. Where do we go back to? To get things the way that we want them to be. Now the healthiest place is probably somewhere in the middle, but sometimes the middle is just a lukewarm mess of compromise. But I think we need to ask ourselves these kind of questions. How does our coming back to one service at the church building help us fulfill our mission? You see, the assumption is that having everybody sitting in rows together in one service is the best way to do things. But what if, and I know, I know of at least one church that's done this, they said, you know, the thing we really missed during the pandemic was fellowship. And so they decided when they came back that they were going to set up tables in their auditorium. And they now sit and worship at tables as families. They look at each other as kids can draw on the table. They've got a little space to crawl on the floor as, as people can look at each other and at the same time still be focused on what is going on and worship together. What if that, I'm not saying making a proposal, but I'm just giving an example. What if that was what the pandemic said? Here is an opportunity to better fulfill your mission so that when a guest comes in, they don't just sit and look at the back of somebody's head, but they sit at a table and they immediately become part of that little community around the table. What if there's something else that is different, that is new, that isn't 2019, but is 2021 and 2022 that better helps us fulfill our mission? Are we coming back with the question, what does the Holy Spirit have for us in the future? Or are we coming back saying, I want to get back to what it was because that's going to be really good when we can have everything back like it was before. Because there is no going back. There never is. Not really. And the assumption that what worked in a previous year or a previous decade is going to work today is almost never the case. Because the world changes. People change. We change. And so the challenge for the church is to say, where is the Holy Spirit pointing us? You know, I don't know what Paul and Barnabas' travel plan was when they left Antioch, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't to go to Cyprus and then to Pisidia and Antioch. But they got to Cyprus. God did something. God disrupted their plans and sent them up there. And then we get the sermon that we have here in the rest of chapter 13. And we see that people responded to that gospel message says in verse 48, uh, when the Gentiles heard this, that they could enter the kingdom, they were glad, they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. That God opens doors. And so whether we're looking for doors ahead of us or behind us. And I think it's a question not just for us as a congregation, but for us personally. Is God opening doors for me? And we're seeing a lot of people making life transitions during this time as we come out of pandemic. But what if my life transition wasn't a career transition or an education transition? What if it was a God transition? If I decided to press on for Jesus and not to go back, 
Am I willing to see where that path takes me? And so I think as a church, if we're to take anything from this chapter, it's to learn to love the future, to look forward to it, to see God doing new things with new people in new places and for us to be part of that. And I think it's a challenge for us, particularly at the moment, as so much of our focus is about getting back what we've lost. Let's take the best of the past and let's transition it into making a better normal in the future.